Good morning all. My name is Susie and I'm reading the Bible for us this morning. It's from Romans 12 verses 1 to 8. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 1132. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace of God given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Susie. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the Senior Minister. For everyone, welcome. If you're new or visiting us this morning, you've joined us uh, this morning at what we describe as our Vision Sunday. It, look, it's, uh, it, it might be overstating the nature of things, but it's a wonderful opportunity for us to restart after the year, uh, after the holidays, for the year ahead, to give ourselves a bit of clarity about, uh, I guess, where we're going, and in part... A uh, part of Vision Sunday is, is obviously our Sunday morning service. Those people online and joining us, um, you get to be part of that, which is great. Um, but we also have lunch after uh, today, some 11.45. We're serving lunch. Uh, it's, lunch is on us. It's our chance to just celebrate the start of the year uh, together. And I think given that you know, we've had a number of months where we haven't been able to do these kind of things, it's nice to kickstart that again. We've got the doors and the windows open and... Um, we'll get people to wear their masks till they sit down for lunch and stuff. But it'd be a wonderful opportunity to, to get together for a meal. So do stick around for that. Maybe you have to duck off, come back again. But 11.45 in the chapel hall for lunch. Maybe if you're watching online, you thought, huh, lunch? Come. Uh, come and enjoy lunch with us. Mainly it's lunch, actually, and then we'll have a little moment at the end where we get to pray together. Uh, we'll be led in prayer and just refocus ourselves for the year ahead. So that's where we're going. Now, would you pray with me? I'm going to, um, I'm going to uh, reflect on that portion of Scripture that Susie just read for us as we, as we start this year together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you speak to our hearts and minds and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I've been watching a show recently. It's about... It, um, it's just one of those docu-series, and it follows a team. Uh, and, and, I mean, this is one of those usual stories in a sense, although what's unique about this team is that they're not a well-known sporting team, at least certainly when the series started, they now are. Uh, what's also interesting, and this is kind of the line of the story, it's less about um, whether they win or lose, although that ends up becoming part of the story. It's about 
the stories behind the bigger story, the story of the individual athletes who make up this team. And of course, what they, what they focus on is the, the individuals, the characters who uh, come from pretty broken families and uh, hard backgrounds to be part of this team. At the end of the first season, they all go around and they ask this question, you know, what have you loved about the year? How have you found the year? And what's really interesting is that each individual who they focused on says, this feels like my family. This feels like my family. That's where their way of describing the sense of belonging, the sense of uh, value and affirmation that they've received from this group of people. And it's not an unusual phrase, actually. I think it's a phrase more and more people use to describe a community that they love. It feels like a family. It may not have been a phrase we used, you know, 50 years ago, but it is now because being part of that is in, in a good community often stands in contrast to maybe a bad family experience that we've had. This is really interesting, this language, because we might think, okay, this is a modern phenomenon to call community family. But what we see in the Bible, of course, is that the, the, the New Testament writers regularly describe the church and God's community as a family. This is one of the key pieces of uh, language that New Testament writers use to describe the church. Family. I mean, they don't maybe use, they sometimes do actually call it the family of God, but often they use what Paul uses in this one. My clicker. I've left my clicker. I might get Gordon to grab my clicker from my pew. Um, and Graham just to flick it through to the next the first slide. The nature of this family, thanks Gordo, nature of this family is revealed actually in the first verse, uh, Romans 12 verse 1. He says, I urge you brothers and sisters, that language actually of calling Christians brothers and sisters, common not just in Paul's writings, you see it especially in John's writing, he calls us the children of God, we're a family. So the question is, what's the essential dynamic of this family? that we, we regularly encounter. And as we see here in the first verse of this reading that we've focused on for today, is that it is a family where sacrifice is at the heart. Sacrifice is at the heart of this dynamic of relationships described as family. Now, you know, when Paul wrote this back in the first century in Greek culture and writing to Israelites, right, to Hebrews generally and Jews, uh, the idea of sacrifice was much more visceral and concrete actually than even it is for us like when we talk about sacrifice we might talk about an athlete who you know spends a lot of time training and might give up financial gain in order to pursue their dream but sacrifice for Paul's time was an animal literally being led physically into the building and and being killed it was sacrifice was blood it was death it was costly in a whole new and very felt way Paul is saying to be part of the family of God is, is costly. Of course, he's making a distinction between that kind of the Old Testament or even the surrounding cultish behavior of, of killing animals to say it's a living sacrifice. Okay? It's, it's different in some ways. It's ongoing. It's continual. And so he says it's a sacrifice. But even more than that, he, he says what it means to enact that sacrifice, Paul says in, verse, in chapter 12, is something very specific. He says in verse 5, So in Christ we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
To enact the sacrifice is to belong, to offer yourself to others, to be willing to belong to other people, to be, in a sense, owned by this group of people. The dynamic of the Christian family is that each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. It's really interesting, actually, because in this verse and in the preceding verses, Paul is talking about the the diversity of gifts and skills that each person has, the, the various strengths they bring to the body. And he says, though many, you could say, we go on to express our many different gifts. We show our multi-giftedness, the variety of gifts that God's given us. But that's not his point, actually. Though many, we actually belong to the other. We belong. So he says, though there's a diversity, there's a deep-felt unity. I was thinking about what this means for me, and I think on one level, it's a sense that my agenda matters less than yours. In fact, your agenda matters more to me than my agenda does because I belong to you. I belong to you. Of course, this is, this, is, this is contrary to a lot of ways. I mean, it's contrary even to the comprehensive school system, which the comprehensive school system that we kind of, we, we experience uh, largely and particularly we find in our, in our private schools is the system which says, we want to find the thing that your child is good at and we want to let them flourish in that. Your child may not be academically gifted, but look, they're brilliant at drama. We want to find, because that will give them a sense of worth, a sense of purpose. Now, of course, all that's, all that's good. I'm, that's not necessarily bad. But do you see, the church is different. You see, you, you don't have your diversity, your uniqueness, for your own sake, but for the sake of others. For you belong to others. What you have belongs to others. My particular gifts are not for my own sake, worth and value, but they belong to you. They belong to you. Uh, what's more interesting is this, um, this sense that it's, it's not just a, a mindset. Because, of course, there's, there's a concrete. He says, let your bodies be living sacrifices. There's a concreteness to it. Uh, and not just let your minds be, although there is a thought process. There's a renewing of our mind, he talks about. But it's a concrete. It's let your bodies. And then he has examples in verses 6 to 8 of different ways that you express this reality of belonging. In different ways, serving, giving, encouraging. Uh, It's not just a mindset, it's concrete. And then he uses this image of body. This is a regular image that uh, Paul uses. He uses in Corinthians famously as well. And I think the metaphor is really helpful to just think through. He you know, in Corinthians he'll talk about what picked up what Pippi was saying a little bit in spotlight. Uh, He talks about how each each member benefits the other. He, he personifies the members of the body. So go, let's extrapolate, let's draw out his example a little bit. Imagine you're a hand, you know, you come to a meal, a beautifully prepared meal. Of course, it's your job to manipulate the cutlery and the food. But, but without the mouth, you don't enjoy the meal. You don't, you don't taste and savour the essence of that meal. Of course, the mouth can't taste the meal without the hand. But without the mouth, the hand, though it can manipulate and move and even serve the meal, it can't enjoy it. 
And, and I think there's a real insight there that Paul is drawing out here. He's saying, in belonging to one another, we taste the fullness of the Christian life. The fullness of it. In fact, what he's saying both here in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, where he uses this image, this metaphor, is that actually if you don't belong to one another, if you don't hand yourself over to God's people, if their agenda doesn't become your agenda, then you will, you will lose something of the experience of the Christian life. You actually can't have the full Christian life experience without belonging to the other. You see, you could operate as a hand, but you won't taste the fullness of it, the richness of it, unless you're willing to belong to the others. A very challenging, very challenging word. And actually, look, if, if you think that Paul's just teaching that for those out there, look at what he says, interestingly, in the first chapter, in his opening, his, his greeting to the Romans, he says this, for I long to see you, not so that I can tell you what I need to tell you, or so that I can take a few of you aside and give you a good talking to. No, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, I want to be with you, Romans, so that I would be encouraged. And also you would be encouraged. And I think the last phrase is really helpful. Among you. That's so helpful because we... We have slipped into a mindset over the last couple of years because of the pandemic where, where we have almost made our Christian faith a, a cerebral thing. You know, we watch, a, we watch a sermon online, and hello if you're online, uh, we watch a sermon online and we, we believe that the knowledge that's been imparted through the screen is sufficient to give us the full experience of the Christian life. But actually... Paul's saying, no, no, he needs to be among them. That's, that's his aim. Now, we know that he never gets there. He never gets to the, to the church. That's his, one of his heartaches, actually. And that's a reality of this life. The among you is not always possible. But the fullest experience of the Christian life comes from belonging and being among you. And so I actually just, I, I mean, I think this is really important. It's got to be a really high value for us as we go forward. It's all great having a vision statement. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large. Uh, it's, it's, it's great having you know, systems and structures and follow-up methods and running programs and running events. But if we don't have a fundamental willingness to belong to the other, then the experience of the Christian life that both we experience and others experience will always be poor will always be poor. Each member belongs to the other, says Paul. And that is at the heart of the dynamic of the Christian family. The Christian family. Now, it's interesting, actually, Paul talks about two things that might distract us, two voices. He has two warnings in this passage that are just worth quickly reflecting on. First of all, in verse 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, but be careful, do not conform to the pattern of this world. There is a voice, and I mean, this world makes maybe us think, ooh, 21st century culture, social media, it's, no, no, this, is the, this age is probably a better way to describe it, because it gives you a sense of the realities of living in a world before Jesus comes again. Do not conform to the, the voices of that age. 
And I think that age, the voice of that age is not just don't serve. I'm sure that that's a challenge at times. I think, I think people are, have an encouragement to serve, but it's, the voice of this age is more something like serve in order that you might be virtuous. Serve in order that you might be valued. Serve in order that you, you might be worthwhile. And that, that's, the, that's the voice of the age that's true for Paul's time and true for our times. This sense in which what you pour out for others is what gives you your worth and value. What makes you virtuous in others' eyes and in the eyes of the Lord. But Paul says, do not conform to that pattern of thinking. That's not the kind of pouring out that God is talking about. Because ultimately, actually, you're pouring that out not to belong to the other, not to make your agenda their, not to make their agenda yours, but to use them for your agenda. To, to make yourself either feel better or look better in the eyes of other people. That's not real service. That's not a real belonging. That's not a real pouring yourself out. And, and, and it also, it undermines your service. It, it makes you anxious. I'm really struck that whenever I see the Australia Day Awards, I think, gosh, I didn't do anything this year, did I? Yeah, there's, a, there's a sense you're, you can so easily, you can so easily be unsure whether you've really, you've really given enough this year. It can also make you a bit bitter and a bit jaded about other people's service. You're pouring yourself, you look across, you say, how come they get all the benefits without pouring themselves out? See, when, when, when the, the word of this age is that your worth and value is based on how much you pour yourself out, you may well even serve, but it will be a service that's tainted and actually is about yourself ultimately. That's the first one. He says, don't listen to the voice of this world. Secondly, he says, don't listen to your own voice, your internal voice. He says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know, it, he's saying... One of the things ultimately that will stop us from allowing ourselves to belong to the other, to the, to the group of God's people, to, to wholly hand our agenda over to the agenda of God's family and, and God himself, is actually too high a view of ourself. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, Despite all the warnings of our culture, our culture gives about the dangers of low self-esteem, the real danger is self-centeredness and egocentricity. I think that's true. I think it's true, actually, when we, we do deep reflection on ourselves. Sure, there are some people who genuinely, genuinely do suffer from low self-esteem. But for most of us, when we go deep down, we ask, our greatest struggle is our, our fundamental belief that we are most important. It may, not be, it may not directly be reflected in all of our activities, but maybe it's just reflected in the voice in our head, which when someone calls you to serve, says, don't they realize what I have on? Maybe it's just that voice which says, right now, I can't do it. I've got more important things to do. I mean, some of those have, have genuinely appropriate responses. But I think deep down when we look at our heart, our inclination, it's been the inclination from the start, is that we are most important. And, and Paul says these two warnings from the outset because he knows unless we recognise these problems, 
Recognize that the voice of the world says, use your service to build your virtue. Recognize that your internal voice will tend over the long term to say you are most important. You will not really be able to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. But it's interesting. The hope for what Paul is saying is not based in the do-nots, but it's based in the gospel. Look at this. This is, the, this is the, what I call the gospel effect, and it's found in the first verse in uh, Romans 12. It's really stalled last time too. Graham, could you click it onto... Oh, there we go. It's gone back now. That slide, for some reason. Romans 12, verse 1. It'll pop up in a minute. He says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The order is really important in this verse, really important. It is not simply, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That would be Old Testament religion. That would be Old Testament religion. In fact, that'd be something before Old Testament religion. Because the pattern of God's work has always been in view, in response to God's mercy. The order is very important. You don't offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to receive God's mercy, but Paul says, as a response to God's mercy. As an understanding that Christ himself has offered himself first for us. The understanding of the gospel which says that Jesus Christ came to belong to us before we were ever willing to belong to him or to anyone else. He belonged to us Though we were fundamentally self-centered, Christ offered himself as a selfless sacrifice for us. That order is crucial because it's that order that changes and empowers and sets us out to live the dynamic, actually, of the Christian life, of living sacrifice. A clear view of God's mercy. In the context of Romans, Paul has spent... 11 chapters talking about this mercy. And only after spending 11 chapters on it is he willing and able to charge the Romans with this live your lives as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy. And it does change things. I remember being in a, um, a rugby team. I was in, when I was at school, I was in the third 15 and I was a reserve for the seconds. Anyway, I got dropped from the thirds because the coach, political, classic. Uh, he, I'm telling you it was. I, I, got, I was outraged. I thought, this is, this is a major injustice, because, of course, at my time in life, it was. Um, and I got dropped to the fourths. The coach of the seconds, he had pity on me. He really liked me. He had a bit of pity on me. He said, don't play the fourths. Come play with me. I'll, I'll give you at least half a game. I, I tell you, I was so, so energised by this, 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 this pity that he poured out on me. I trained so hard. I, I really enjoyed training. I enjoyed it at a new, whole new level. And I'd play half a game or two-thirds of a game, and I felt like, I felt like I'd run on for Australia. It, it's, it's what happens when you experience simple acts of mercy, let alone the, the mercy of God in the gospel. It transforms your life, right? And, and to the extent that you believe the gospel, it will change your, it'll change your service from obligation to gratitude, from obligation to gratitude. It'll change your service from from a a prideful, self-centered, self-assertion 
to humility. It'll change your service from uncertainty to deep confidence in what God has called you to do. I love this quote from this guy, uh, Ray Ortland. Hopefully, Michael. It does work. There you go. He says this. If you can't read it up the back, I'll read it. He says, Our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe. Just pause it. That's a really helpful insight. And this is what Paul is, is pulling out in Romans 12. He said, our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe. Our convictions as opposed to our opinions. And I think that's a really helpful dichotomy that he sets up here. It is possible for the gospel to remain at the shallow level of opinion, even sincere opinion, without penetrating to the deeper level of conviction. But when the gospel grips us down in our convictions, we embrace its implications wholeheartedly. You see what he's saying? I don't know if you are an opinion person. If you are, then your service will never reflect the gospel wholeheartedly. It might even reflect it on this, to us, but internally you know it's not there. But it is when the gospel goes deep down to your deepest convictions, when you are convicted that Christ gave himself for you on the cross, when you're convicted that Christ gave himself for you when you were worthless on the cross because of your sin and rejection of God, when you are convicted that such is God's mercy to you, such is his love for you, it will reorder things. And interesting, I just love that he says it's actually in our relationships with one another, as we belong to the other, that we see the gospel take hold. You, can you see how this, this word from Romans 12, this reminder of Scripture, is crucial? It's, of course, crucial to us as a church. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's just, it's crucial to what it is to be a Christian in an individualistic age, isn't it? It is in our relationships with one another where our convictions really bear out. So the question actually is, do you believe that Christ has served you? That's the question you have to answer. Do you believe that Christ has served you, served you with his whole heart and whole life to the cost of his own soul? Would you do you believe that Christ has served you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the challenge of your word, the picture of, of your family belonging to one another, willingly, joyfully handing over what is theirs for the other. The challenge of that uh, and the beautiful picture of that, we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we thank you even more for the gospel, though, the mercy that you have offered us first in Christ which is what gives us joy in our service, which is what gives us gratitude in our service, which is what gives us humility in our service, which is what powers our service and allows us to hand ourselves over to each other. In Jesus' name.